The Seahawks were shut out for the first time in the Russell Wilson era, wasting a terrific effort by the defense and falling 17-0 to the Packers. At 3-6, can this team push for the playoffs, or is it time to reassess? The Athletics' Michael Sean Duger joins us to discuss this, life on the beat, and more. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my talented producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? You know, Jackson, we are coming off of uh, consecutive embarrassing losses for the Rams, so I'm feeling fantastic. How are you? <laughs> the bright spot, man. Yeah, that's what's sustaining me, too, honestly. But, uh, I mean, speaking of beatdowns, that was a mess on Sunday, wasn't it? I mean, despite the defense playing their balls off for three and a half quarters, the offense just couldn't do anything. And now Seattle finds themselves at three and six with just eight games to play. Last week, we talked about reserving judgment on this and honestly any other team until the second half of the season. And even as someone who prides myself on taking the long view, I've had trouble with that this year. Now that we're officially into the second half of the season, I think it's safe to say the Seahawks are in uncharted waters as far as their future is concerned. Fortunately, we've got an incredible guest with us today to help us break it all down. An amazing addition to the Seahawks beat and one of the straightest shooters out there. Please welcome Michael Sean Dugar. Mike, thanks for making the time. What up? What up? How you guys doing? Great, man. I'm not smoking a cigar. I feel out of place. (laughs) It's all right. You You got good cigar energy, man. So you're right at home in here. All right, let's do it. Now, a lot of folks listening are familiar with your work and or follow you on Twitter, but maybe you can tell us all a little bit about how you got to where you're at. Uh, Yeah, let's see. What's the shortest version of this? <laughs> um, I went to Franklin High School in Seattle, and we had a very, uh, I don't say well-known, but a veteran-like drama teacher. Her name was Mrs. Smith. She was like an actress for a little bit. She was in some old movie, uh, Officer and a Gentleman oh, in yeah? like the 80s. Uh, yeah, she had like a role in there. Right? So I really liked drama class in high school. And I took it like three, four times because it was a good way to get an elective. Uh, there was no homework. Uh, <laughs> all you had to really do was just be in a couple of plays and, uh, you know, moose and cha- be on the stage crew in a musical. Like This is great, you know. Uh, and then my counselor was like, hey, man, you can't just keep taking drama and graduate. Right? Like, you need to take something else. Um, so I was forced to take... Um, the, I took the newspaper class my senior year, my final semester of, of uh, high school. It wasn't like the funnest thing in the world, but I used uh, later when I was in an uh, English class in college at uh, Washington State, I was in my uh, teacher's office hours trying to get my grade raised. And somehow we got to start talking about like the Saints 49ers playoff game. That was the one where I think where like Kaepernick plays. The Saints get smoked, I think. It's in the Bay. Um, and he was the English teacher was like, yeah, you know, you you should like write for the school newspaper, the, Ever- the Daily Evergreen is what it's called at Wazoo. So like, you should write for the Evergreen. You should have like a column in there or something like that. You seem to really know sports really well. And I don't remember taking his advice right away. Like I said, I was there to get my grade raised, not like life advice. Um, <laughs> but he was eventually right. And I did. Um, and so I was working in a student newspaper for a while um, out in Pullman. And eventually got a job as the sports editor at the local uh, paper out there in Moscow, uh, Idaho, the Moscow Pullman Daily News, covered high school sports, covered um, eight-man football. I'm like 75% sure 
I covered like a game with uh, Leighton Vander Esch from the Cowboys, uh, his like state title game. I want to say like his senior year at a very small school called Summon River, which is right in the middle of the state of Idaho, pretty much. It's like where it goes from mountain time to Pacific time, his small little town. I don't think they even have any stoplights, man. I feel like it's just like a bar, like maybe one sheriff. It's like one of them type of towns. They probably even have cable out there, man. It really is weird. He's easily the richest dude ever from Salmon River. But I bring that up because like I didn't just jump from D1, you know, football covering Wazoo athletics to the pros. Now I was out there taking my own stats, covering small school volleyball um, type of places where at signing day, it was a big deal if like a random girl was going to play tennis at some junior college in Kansas. Like that was a yeah, big yeah. deal. It was like front page news there. Not a kid going to Bama or something like that. Right? I'm talking about eight man, don't even got enough kids to put 11 on the field on both teams type of football, baseball, uh, golf. My first beat ever was swimming. I can't even swim. Uh, so like I only did that for a few years, like two or three years. Uh, but that was a little bit of a grind before I got a call. Um, or I, I think I made the call, one of the two, from the homie Steve Cohen at the Seattle PI, who was like, you know, I'm leaving sports. You know, I got the position open. You know, I think we had met, me and Steve had met at one Apple Cup, maybe. I used to write about Wazoo, like I said, and I drove over because I'm from Seattle. Um, met him at like one Apple Cup, I think, in the UW press box. We didn't even know each other that well. And, you know, hooked me up. Got the job, came over here and see, uh, what's that, 2017. So as soon as I got here, the Seahawks decided to miss the playoffs. <laughs> uh, and then got the job with the Athletic. Again, I got to shout out Steve, because in May 2018, Steve um, left the PI and then got hired at the Athletic to be like a city editor. That's kind of when our structure of our, our site was a little bit different. So you, you hired someone to work in the city, and then they've like – filled out the rest of the staff where you had hockey or whatever baseball um so when they asked steve like hey you know we need a seahawks guy who who are you thinking boom name name comes up and i kind of been here uh ever since that's like the shortest way i can and put it from not being able to take drama right (laughs) yeah right boom now now i'm here you know full-on journalist mode no i i love it man i mean i always appreciate the grind part of the story you know and, uh, and, and the fact that you cut your teeth and, and earned your shot is, is awesome. And one of the deals with being a journalist is that we all get to see the product of your work, but I know I'm not the only one curious as to what life on the beat looks like. Can you tell us one or two of your favorite things about your job? And if anything comes to mind, the worst part about being a beat reporter? Uh, let's see. Okay. I'll start with the, the, the fun parts. Um, the fun parts are Okay, I'm gonna go macro on the fun. It, it get kind of deep here, uh, but I think one of the fun parts for me is having a job that is associated with being able to read and write at a high level, um, because I'm black. We don't like we're not just naturally associated with jobs and professions that require those two skills. It's usually something physical or in an entertainment area it's not just like oh you're an intellectual essentially you know is what you can associate with being a journalist um so i think that part is kind of pretty cool people don't associate it with like me like my homies that way but that is kind of cool on like a big picture level yeah. it's like oh you have a job that requires you think you know and and put words together well and, and process information well 
and then like spread that stuff to to people who um who give a damn what you have to say that's pretty cool in the macro level as it pertains to just like um my my race which is very important in this industry and just any discussion of who who i am so that's kind of cool that's, that's awesome a, man that's a fun part um some of the other parts just you know the 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 perception that you have a cool job is always cool right like your job can be cool but if no one thinks it's cool that's right or knows it's cool <laughs> then how cool is it it's like that tree falling in the woods type of right. thing right like if you got some cool job at google and no one knows that right and it's like how cool is your job but everyone thinks your job is cool right i was just talking to the valet guys at vmac today and just like how the job goes and like oh you get to you know my profile picture on twitter is me talking to pete carroll right like it's a big deal you know pete carroll is legitimately famous you know and i've talked to to russ before you know a ton, ton of times obviously but that the fact that people think that's so cool is kind of cool if that makes sense oh it like, totally the, does the players are the players are humans at the end of the day it's like talking to them is not the craziest thing in the world but like you know, these are people that seem inaccessible to the rest of the world. And it's just like, no, nah, I just bumped into Bobby in the lobby, you know? <laughs> uh, so that part is kind of, kind of dope. And then I guess the, 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 um, the third part is just being that bridge between the, the coaches and players and the, and the fans. Cause, um, you know, we're needed as much as the players and coaches can just like communicate through social media and stuff like that, or their own YouTube channel or do a documentary or, sit on a football field with their dad like cam did which is a bad idea but like they still need us right we're necessary we give that window into you know who these warriors are because like they're beyond just smashing heads into each other right pretty intellectual cats they're flawed some of them are smart funny um insightful some dudes are just uh none of that (laughs) and we give a window into them too right that's just part of human experience so i think that's that's kind of fun uh, all, all that on top of the travel and going to every NFL city that's not Green Bay. That's not, <laughs> I heard nothing. About I heard, man. I I was seeing I was seeing some of the other guys talking about that too. I, that sounds like a bitch of a trip, man. It's it's not fun. They're really. I mean, this isn't a hot take, but I feel like it's one we need to start verbalizing so it can become like a standard take in the NFL. There is zero reason for there to be an NFL franchise in the city of Green Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> Zero reason for doing it. No reason. Yeah. There's like none. It doesn't it doesn't really other than his like um what's the word I want to use? Like um the historical part is another way to say that. The nostalgia, I guess, yeah. of it, of having a franchise. There's no other reason there. It doesn't do anything for like market size or like growth of the game. No, it's just this little town you're driving through, this little residential neighborhoods, and then boom, stadium in the middle of the place. It's there's really no reason there. Like I used to think that about like buffalo too but i like i've come around on the buffalo thing not coming around on green bay really no reason for a for an nfl team to be located there wisconsin as a state sure put it in milwaukee or whatever sure but i have no idea why there's well i'm not i know why duh but we of all the places that teams have moved and stuff i don't know how they've st- stood pat right there in 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 this in the in the uh nfl landscape it doesn't make sense to me so weird uh, was oh the the bad parts. Whew. Oh, this is gonna be a lot. <laughs> I'll try to keep this one short. I think that the perhaps the worst part, and I just had a thread about this on Twitter, like a short one. But I think the worst part currently is the lack of a distinction between a journalist, 
a commentator, and an insider. Mm. Those are three very different roles, right? It's the difference between me, Adam Schefter, and Colin Cowherd, right? We are we are all media, but we have we play three very different roles in the media space. Um, and I that line is so blurred right now. We're all just media, right? If Colin says something on his show or Schefter reports something that's sourced and it has something to do with the Seahawks, then it's then by the time insert player comes to the podium on Wednesday to talk to me or me and Greg Bell or Bob or whatever. Now we got to deal with that. Yep. And we didn't even say it. Yeah. We was watching on TV just like no, that. But, we, got, we saw the same But clip. you said it because you're the media and now it's in the media. Right. You know, it's, it's, it, the, when a narrative gets created, it's not, there's no distinction between who created it and perhaps why they created it. It's just the media. And the, I, to extend that, um, I don't think the players and coaches, not I think, I know, I know they don't distinguish between like a blog or a fan site or like the LA Times. Like on some levels they do, but largely the players don't know. They just know that someone wrote a thing about them and there's a link to it. Right. That's it. Right. And it's online and their mom saw it or their cousin saw it or their high school coach saw it and read it and sent it to them. The lack of distinction there has like made it very hard for us people who are there every day, who do travel. Um, who do have to follow certain journalistic rules, right? Like some you blog anything. You can say anything. You know, you can call Tyler Lockett ugly and say he can't catch and he's soft. <laughs> right, you can right. say all of these things, right? And just if you got Wi-Fi and 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 uh, WordPress, you can make it happen. Yeah. Right. And then but Tyler doesn't know that you're somebody who lives in Alabama, right? Who's just a big Seahawk fan that lives in like Tuscaloosa or something like that. You're never in the VMAC, doesn't know. Um I mean, some of these guys are smart. They see us every day and figure it out. But I just think as an industry at large, that distinction kind of stinks right now. Then everyone has like a platform. Uh, it's just, it just throws off. It throws off the, uh, I don't, it, it just distracts from the people who are doing it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I do. I, I feel you on that. And and a couple of things you said that one, you know, to your point, you're just making, I imagine that the relationships that you form with these guys that are on the team and on the coaching staff go a long way, right? Like you're not just some random face. They know you, they see you every week. They talk to you every week. So it's gotta, right. it's gotta be frustrating to have put in the time, the effort, the energy necessary to create these relationships, to build trust, and then feel like you're getting lumped in with people who have no connection to the players and the coaches that you're writing about. Yeah. That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a really big part of it, man. The relationships matter a lot. Like I was just talking to a journalism class at Wazoo, um, and I gave them the examples. Like, if think of the trust that they have to put in us, right? To like, let's say I'm doing a feature on DK, right? And DK lets me talk to him for 20 minutes. All DK knows is I talked to him for 20 minutes. He doesn't really know who else I talked to. He doesn't know how I interpreted what he just said to me. Whether I'm gonna like uh, relay the information in the way that he intended it, he doesn't know me, you know. That's a lot of trust to do that. And then we do that in these like really stressful, like really impactful public moments. Like, hey, you just blew the game for your team. Here's my microphone, go. And they trusted me to get that right, to spread to the to the masses. That's really tough. And I told my journal, journal, that journalism class, it's like, man, I wouldn't do that if I was them. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be like Marshawn, to be honest, unless I knew you personally. Right. Or how there's players who like really only talk to like, certain certain people like dame lillard really talks to chris haynes at yahoo you know odell really talks to Josina, who's kind of doing her independent thing now you know jared goff and mike silver like you know 
I wouldn't even be. I don't even be jealous of stuff. I get that because that would probably be me. Because if you walked, if somebody walked in my house right now, a reporter was like, "Mike, I want to do a story about you." I'm like, "Man, who are you? How well do you know me? How well has this research been going? I'm gonna interview you first, <laughs> yeah. you know, before before that happens." And when you don't have that, and then you get people with takes on Twitter or a blog or whatever, and that just gets lumped into what the high school coaches see and the co- and the cousins and the brothers and sisters all see online and send it to the player. Like, Ooh, look what they're saying about you. Okay. Let's specify they, cause I didn't say nothing. Right. You know, that, that, the fact that that's not, that distinction is gone. That's, that's probably the worst part of the, of journalism in general. Currently. I, I, I believe that man, uh, two, two more things before we get to, to the Seahawks themselves. One, I want to say that I totally get what you're saying about having like a cool job because what's the first question someone asks you after you're introduced, right? Oh, so what do you do? So it's cool. You say, I write about the Seahawks for the athletic, you know, that's like instant conversational swagger right there. The other thing that I wanted to make sure we touched on is you talk a lot of shit, man, about basketball to some of these guys. So I got to know how good are you? What players are you better than? Uh, I'm probably better than probably all of them. Because really um, I've seen Bobby play, and there's kind of a consensus that Bobby's the best, right? So if I think I'm just well, he he comes back at you the loudest. I think he does. He's a, he's a really good shit talker. Um, underrated one too. He's 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 probably just as good as Sherm, but it's subtle. <laughs> like Bobby would be like a really good battle rapper. Um, I'm a big battle rap guy, so like Bobby would be a really good one because he would research you really well, and then use your stuff against you as Sherm would just yell at you right? <laughs> right. and it'd be really funny whereas Bobby would like hit you real with like little jazz where it hurts so like I've seen Bobby play um I saw Rush a little bit um I'll probably yeah I mean I've seen Tyler I really don't think a lot of these guys can dribble that's the problem and I'm a really good defender so like like I, I think I tweeted John, John Ursua or somebody maybe Quandre and was like if I decide that someone my size, because yeah, think I'm like 5'9", 165, right? So I'm not huge. But like in terms of basketball, John Arsu is not that much bigger than me. Quandre Diggs is not that much bigger than me if we're talking basketball. Tyler Lockett, not that much bigger than me if we're talking basketball. And even if you are bigger, can you dribble? Like DK64, okay, cool. Probably has no post moves, <laughs> right? Nothing. You hand him the ball. He'll probably try to just muscle you, which might work, you know, but in a team game that, you know, we can yeah. W, we can figure that out. Right. So, like, I'm a good, really good defender. Um, if I get hot, you're probably going to lose. Because I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm kind of like Steph. I don't shoot like Steph, to be very clear. I'm not like that. But if you notice when Steph does get hot, he gets further and further away from the basket. I know you're a big Dame guy. Dame's pretty similar. Like, <laughs> he gets a three with his toe on the line. Next thing, four threes Keep later checking. in the fourth quarter, he's shooting from half court. Yeah. Yeah, like yep. that confidence just just kind of builds. But I also think that like I take pride in like being really smart. Like I'm the guy in the pickup pickup game that, all right, it's four three, we're going to eleven. But I've already diagnosed what the other team is doing. So when next time somebody takes a timeout to tie their shoe, I'm gonna talk to my big man and be like, hey, look, they're trying to attack us like this. So when they roll, do this, come out with this shoulder this way, and I hit you right here, boom, we start. You know, like yeah, yeah, stuff like that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Just like recognizing stuff, especially on defense. People only have one or two moves. So if you figure out what those are and you attack them, people usually don't have a counter. They usually just pick up the ball. Now I need to get rid of it because I took away your right hand or whatever. So I'm pretty – I personally, if there was five of me, I know we'd be able to beat some Seahawks. But we're, we're losing people. We lost Ben Arthur, the homie. He went to Tennessee to cover the Titans. 
uh, Joe Fans now in Vegas doing his thing. Like I was actually kind of counting on those guys <laughs> to be part of this media media game. Like it can't just be me and like a homie Chris Kidd and uh, you know Tim Tim Boo. <laughs> I've hooped with uh, I've hooped with Tim Boo for the AP. I've hooped with Adam Judah the Times. Kevin Shockey of of KJ like I've hooped with a lot. I feel pretty good. Yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah. about it. we just, we just would need to communicate really well, um, crash the boards, um, and be efficient with our shots and not get intimidated when they try to use their athleticism against. I believe in us, man. If there's when COVID, when when we get past like the COVID phase and we get to the off season, if somebody puts together a charity event at like Climate Pledge and we do a media versus something, you get a sponsor, we donate some money to the charity or whatever, I'll do it. I need that video. Man. De- I, we definitely should do it. All right, all right. Well, you need you need a six man. You let me know. I'm, <laughs> I'm good at passing out water. I'll make sure you got your towels. I'm good at that shit, man. <laughs> oh, I would talk so right. much shit if we win that. If we were to win that too, I'd be in. Good, good. Yeah, carrying carrying the bullhorn around. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get into that game in Green Bay, your favorite city. Broad strokes. What were your main takeaways from that performance? That the offense as currently constructed is broken. Um, and that's not to say that it's going to score zero points a week. That's dumb. Even the worst offense in the league, I think, is Houston right now, scores about 14 points a game, right? So they're going to score more points. So I, I need to like qualify that statement in a way. But I really just think if you look at – Russ is on his third coordinator, right? And the offense looks largely the same. The things that they're not good at, they're really consistent. And I think that this is just what happened Sunday is the perfect storm of all the things that have been wrong before that they've just been able to mask with a player or two. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that in these last few years, like, yes, the defense has deteriorated, but Russ has had some of his worst games too in the last, since I've been covering the, the beat. Right, like he, they scored seven against the Rams in 2017, 42 to seven. They were held without a touchdown against the Rams in 2019 down in LA. Down in LA last year, they scored one touchdown. I think it was a rushing touchdown by Collins and Russ threw like three picks. Um, he's always Russ has had some really bad games against Zimmer of uh, the Vikings in particular. Like one of his worst games, they scored seven points. Um, Twenty, I think they won 21 to seven, but had some defensive touchdowns in there. So right. I think that that's it's it's that information that I've taken into account when I saw them score zero points. It's that defenses have kind of decided this is the blueprint, and I only use the term figuring out because I think that's kind of coded um, the way we used it in, in in sports with the way who we say gets figured out. But um, they've decided, all right, look, Russ, you we have ten years of data to say where here's where you like to throw it. Right, and we know your O line is only going to be what's so good. So we know what you like to do. We're going to force you to do the thing you don't, and you can beat us with the thing you don't. But it's going to take you a lot longer to do that. And if you don't have the patience to do it, you, your play caller, Pete, and your O line holding up for nine, ten play drives, we are probably going to beat you. And in a perfect world, you won't even score. So, like I said, they'll score points in other games, but this isn't the first time they've been held without a touchdown. Like I said, the, the Rams have done it. The Rams have either held them to one touchdown or no touchdowns. Like four, four every year in the last four years, I'm pretty sure. 2017, one touchdown. 2018, no, 2018 didn't count. But then 2019, they had zero touchdowns in the, the LA game. And even last year, they had the one. Um, and then this year, they only had seven points when they scored uh, uh, before Russ hurt his finger. So like, like I said, this is not just, oh, they scored zero points, so it was broken. No. 
why they scored zero is why I think it's broke. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Rams and and how well they've done against Russ over the last half decade. If I'm not mistaken, the Packers defensive coordinator was on the Rams staff for all those years. And it was very, very clear that they were taking away what Seattle wanted to do. And I think for me, the most frustrating thing about the Seahawks offense, really for the last, I would say the last calendar year, because it was about this time last year where they started to struggle after that really hot start, is the inability to counterpunch. And if defenses do, like you're talking about and say, hey, look, we know what you want to do. We're going to sell out to take that away from you. The... I don't know if it's a reluctance or if it's a flat out inability to say, okay, fine, we're going to do this instead. And for me, I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that I can diagnose that stuff, but I'm not getting paid a lot of money to be able to diagnose that stuff. I mean, if you're a coordinator in the NFL, you are supposedly one of the best and brightest minds in the industry. You are competing every week against a staff of the best and brightest minds who are watching tens of hours of tape figuring out what it is you want to do. It is your job. It is incumbent upon you to figure out what you need to do to get around what they're trying to do. And my question for you, Mike, is how much of that is, you mentioned three different offensive coordinators and still struggling. Is this a reflection of limitations within the scheme and how Pete Carroll wants to play offense? Or is this more a reflection of, hey, there's just ways to beat Russ? regardless of who's calling plays. I think it's a little bit of both. And making sure to say it's both is important because where Pete has failed in that regard, failed is strong, but you get what I mean. Fallen short, let's call it that. Where Pete has fallen short in that regard is the construction of the roster. Because if you are going to have a counterpunch, you can't just have a counter. It's got to be a counterpunch that knocks dude back. Right? Like, if you just love tapping him on the chin, that doesn't work. You need to, like, you know, st- you know, stun him a little bit. And Pete has, I can't remember the last time they had a top 10 run-blocking offensive line. I can't really remember. Maybe maybe 2014. But Marshawn was, like, one of the leaders, I think, in, like, yards bef- uh, fewest yards before contact or something like that. So, like, he was getting, he was, make, he was making nothing, out of, something out of nothing at a very high rate. So, even then, I'm not sure how great they were. So my, my point with that is Pete, it's Pete's job because he oversees personnel. It's his job. All right, Pete, if you want to be a run first team, fine. Find the best running backs you can, and you better have some freaking good offensive linemen who can fucking block. And that has not been the case um, outside of maybe like the 2018 season. They were like super, super good at it um, with Fluker and like Sweezy and uh, some other cats. But I think that that's really where Pete has fallen short on offense. It's like you want to be this thing. You want this to be your style. But you are not getting the personnel consistently to have that be your style. Because, yeah, every team has – they didn't, teams didn't just start playing cover two against Rust. They've been doing it. right? But they had a counter to do it that they could beat teams with, and then they, you know, they just were really talented on defense, so teams just couldn't fucking score. So it didn't matter. And where Russ, where, where Russ is in this is – like, and I asked Pete about this on like Monday. I was like, dude, there's like nine or 10 years of data now to suggest there's a place where your quarterback doesn't like throwing it. It's not even an opinion at that point. You can use any chart, little bubble graph, line graph, heat map, pie chart, whatever. Everything you learned in middle school about math. You can use all of them and they will show you that Russ really prefers to throw it outside the numbers. And he's really good there. Probably one of the best in the game 
ever, probably, outside the numbers. But there's a whole middle of the field you have to be able to exploit, or teams are just going to leave it open and let you try to try to beat them. And th- thus, where they both play a role in this, and in the third element of it is, like, here's the best example I could use. Um, I think it was, I want to say, who, who does Monday Night Football? I think it was Eli and Peyton, and they were watching the, the Lions-Packers this year. And then the Lions are playing a bunch of cover two against Rodgers. And I think it was Peyton who was like, yeah, man, they just got to keep running them out of it. Just run them out of that cover two, and then they'll bring a guy in the box and you can beat them. And I want to say it was like Romo or Collinsworth on a separate game when another team was playing cover two. I think it was Collinsworth who was like, yeah, no, just just to throw in that middle of the field and you'll get them out of that cover two. And that represented the two ways you can view how to get teams out of that coverage. And if you do, but if imagine being two guys in the room who can't agree, imagine if Pete's in there like, hey, look, split safety, hand it to Chris. And then Russ is like, well, maybe I can hit Tyler here. Well, then there you go. You got the last like two or three years of Seahawks football where it doesn't seem like the coach and quarterback get along. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something I think we all feel it. And, and it's good to hear that kind of put in words, I think a little bit from someone close to the team, because they're they're good at least until the past 12 months at at presenting a really unified front to the rest of us right they get along they they're buying in i mean russ talks like pete a lot more than he used to uh and and all that kind of stuff but from a uh, a style point of view they don't seem symbiotic anymore and and I don't know how much of that is Russ going outside of the game plan or if it is just Pete wants certain puzzle pieces and doesn't have those. And and that's a callback to something that Mina and I were talking about when uh, when we had Mina Kimes on the show was, you know, Pete and John are working together to bring players in. And a lot of times, you know, they make these big moves and then don't put them in the position to make them succeed at what made them great in the first place whether it be percy harvin or the big one for me is jimmy graham i was totally fine with making a big trade you're a championship contender feel like this guy puts you over the top well you're trading for a big wide receiver and then they're putting his hand in the dirt on 50 percent of the plays and trying to get him to like block defensive ends and pick up linebackers in the second level and that's just not what he does and and i think you're right there's a disconnect between the style that pete wants to play and the personnel and their ability to pull that off. I think that there is a lot of talent on this offense, but they're not going to hit that ceiling unless they have an offense that is tailored around those strengths. Yeah, I think Pete is like inherently risk-averse because he's a defensive-minded coach. I think defensive-minded coaches are pretty similar, actually, in that regard, where they, when it comes to throwing the ball, they envision either more or just as many negative outcomes as potential positive ones and when you and they view running the ball they they see more potential positive outcomes than negative ones and then there's some other stuff about like time of possession and things like that the Niners actually are a really good case study of this where it's like like the Niners game actually when they just beat the Rams it's really good like you could examine that particular game and extrapolate a lot of data from it because the you would look at the game and be like oh they ran the ball well and that's why they control the time of possession. But I feel like that ignores the relationship between third down conversion rate and time of possession. Mm-hmm. You can yes. run the ball all you want, you know, but if you don't convert third downs, you won't have the ball long. 
right? Like, look look at the Seahawks right now. They're the worst. They have the fewest number of offensive plays. They're the worst uh, offensive team in the league on third down, right? And then their offense is struggling. You know, I think there's a there's, a, there's probably a stronger correlation between third down success and time of possession than run success rate and time of possession. But you, I think coaches in general like Pete and traditional football coaches would probably lean towards the running game there. And that makes for when you are a run first team, you put your quarterback in really tough positions on third down like Jimmy G was in. He just happened to hit them all. They were like eight of 13, I think. But that's not sustainable, as any Seahawks fans know, because the Seahawks have never been really good on third down other than like maybe 2015. Well, I'm glad you brought up third down because I think that maybe more than anything speaks to the disconnect that you were mentioning earlier between Russ and the style of offense that Pete wants to run. My thought is the best thing you can do with regards to third down as an offense is avoid them entirely. Correct. Like of, of all the downs, that's the one with the highest leverage against you. I mean, the best teams are converting them in the high 40%, right? So it's, it's like a jump shot in basketball. The best jump shot shooters are shooting in the mid to high 40%, but that's still as a defense, what you're hoping that they settle for. When you look at the best offenses, the bucks, the bills, the Chiefs. I'm not even talking about the pass-heavy ones. I'm talking the Ravens. These are teams that are the Titans. They're avoiding third downs to a large degree. They are going for first downs on first down. They're going for first downs on second down. And okay, yeah, you're going to have some third downs. You're not always going to convert. But to intentionally run two plays short of the sticks is bad process in my mind, especially in the modern NFL. Yeah, I think... And it's it's so weird because I had to grow into this too. This is another like behind the scenes look at kind of how I view the job. You have because I'm from Seattle too, so Pete Carroll means a little bit something different to me. Even if I didn't grow up a Seahawks fan, and you know, like I was a big Reggie Bush fan in middle school sure. because of I think we all Pete were and those shows. Yeah, like Reggie was just so cool, and that t- Pete made college football look cool. Man, I wanted to go to USC because you know those guys. So it's it's very there's an arrogance associated with getting to where i'm at 29 years old never even played football and having the gumption the whatever the gall whatever it is to tell pete carroll he's wrong about something football related like that's a tough place to get to i remember people make making that point to me in like 2018 or 2019 it's like you guys are telling this hall of fame coach he should run the ball less and it's like if he's running the ball that at that rate like there's probably a good reason he's won a super bowl he's won natty's and it's like, yeah, there's something to that, but like, we don't want to treat these guys as a what's the word like infallible. I think that would be like we just we just don't want to do that. Anybody can be wrong about anything, right? Like, it, it, yeah. you, if you ignore information, like that's what real stupidity is. Not not like not knowing. That's going to be just ignorance. But if you have information presented in front of you and you choose to ignore it because of your own just like arrogance, well, then you're Aaron Rodgers, you know, calling Joe Rogan, and you don't want to be that. And so I think I had to get there with Pete. Um, but I feel confident in it now. There's a, I, you know, I, I've learned enough about the game. I've, you know, I, I listen to people who are smarter than me. Um, I read a lot. Uh, I understand how statistics and numbers work and correlations and things like that. Like all that is important. And I think that's where I can like come to Pete and be like, Nah, dude, you are putting Russ in very difficult third down situations with your run, run, pass mentality. Even if you were really good at running the ball, you would still face a lot of third downs because these, you know, coaches view like, oh, a four-yard run—that's good. Okay, cool. You do that twice; it's third down now, right? Like, and if you so happen to have a two-yard run in there, now it's third, and we have to throw, right? So, consistently putting your quarterback in those situations is is not good. I do think there are some things that Pete's been a genius at schematically, 
like especially on defense, he's done some really good things to to adjust. Um, so he changed the way years. the NFL played defense. He changed how the NFL played defense. Right. Like he, there's some things I just won't ever consider. Like you, like he's got it. Like he's doing some really great things. But like offensively, I do think that like he he would really benefit from another voice, a more progressive voice that he trusted. That's why I asked him last year. I said, who can tell you the truth? And he named his two kids in Tater. And I was like, man, yeah. okay, well, your son's about to leave to go to Arizona and Tater's not even here. He wasn't at the time. Yeah. So it's like, man, yeah. you don't really got nobody in the building that can tell you the real. And that's a pro- That's when I really knew that the offseason was going to be bad. And that was in like January before Russ went on the DP show. So like, that I think is at a core issue with it too. Russ and Pete surround themselves, I think personally, with people who agree with them and can't really afford to disagree with yeah. them. Right, right. You know, like Russ has a lot of people who are close to him that are on his payroll. Do you think that the solution is that we should tweet more? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I do think the way that Russ has kind of embraced, not embraced, become a member of Seahawks Twitter right before our eyes. Like, uh, what did he do? He trademarked Let Russ Cook. He hired Cable Thanos. Like that's such an underrated part of Seahawks Twitter like history is that he freaking hired that guy to hang out with him and make videos. And he hired Josh to you know hang out with him. But I do think that Russ has kind of revealed over the years that he is he he like subscribes to the Seahawks Twitter ideologies in a lot of ways, like the throwing more and the team being bad at drafting a lineman. And like, there's that picture of him at Green Bay in 2017, where all four defensive ends are like right on him, and all the offensive linemen are basically on their asses. And Russ would probably look. We'd, we'd share that picture and be like, "Man, Seahawks are really letting Pete down, or they're letting Russ down." And Russ would like like it these days and like yeah, the tweet and right? be like, "Yeah, man, nah, they are, man. Fuck, these linemen aren't good." That part has been kind of interesting to see about Russ. Well, let's let's jump to that because I really appreciated your take this offseason. I mean. This past offseason was certainly the most tumultuous of the past decade, and everybody listening knows the drama that surrounded Russ and you know the Dan Patrick interview, the releasing of the teams he would be wanted to be traded to, and and all of these types of things. And and you know I know you and I had some good conversations on Twitter about this, and I I always felt pretty strong that he wasn't going anywhere this past offseason. Just just the financials didn't add up for him to go anywhere, but I did come into this season and, and I've written about this a fair amount this year, feeling like this is the year that determines the pathway moving forward for the first time. Like we really are at a crossroads with these two. You've been really, really in touch with this situation. What were your thoughts on the relationship say back in like July versus well let's even going back as far as right after the super bowl and everything that went through the spring and summer versus now has that changed have you seen a a switch in the dynamic between those two or is this it's kind of still running the same course i think um so the analogy i used it's a it'll probably take me too long to explain but i use like two analogies that are movie references i'm a big movie guy like i used a i robot in the the movie with shia labeouf with the uh with the eagle eye. Uh, in both of those cases, the, um, the artificial intelligence is created by the humans and they work together really well. And the artificial intelligence eventually evolves beyond uh, needing the, <laughs> the humans. And they try yeah. to, and then the artificial intelligence in both regards tries to take us out. Um, and I think that's actually in a weird way, 
an on point analogy to look at like the Pete and Russ situation. In this case, Pete uh, Russ would be the artificial intelligence, right? You created by Pete, drafted. You know, like okay, I'm gonna help you be a great quarterback, and then Russ evolves to this place where it's like, well, shoot, man, I'm gonna go in the Hall of Fame just like you. So maybe I'm the guy, and you're not the guy anymore. You know, just like the robots and I, robot decided, hey, man, you guys are actually fucking the planet up. So maybe we should actually be in control of this thing. And then they realized those two sides could not co- coexist. And that's kind of where I think that this is this is at. I think that there's no they're they're not at a point where they can continue to coexist. And part of it is, and I was telling somebody this the other day, the biggest problem is they both have a point. You know, like that's really where the relationship is at is probably at a standstill. If they do get in the room, it's like that cover two analogy. They do get in the room and Russ is like, well, if I just hit Tyler on this dig route, we beat cover two. Okay. Pete's like, well, if you hand it to Chris and he gets six yards, then you know that's great. We, you know, we beat cover two. They're both right. Okay, well, how do you proceed? You know, Russ is like, we've won a lot of games with me because I'm great. Pete's like, okay, cool. We've also won a championship doing it my way. All right, so who has to give there? And then because I don't think those two necessarily surround themselves with a bunch of people who can tell them no in a very earnest way. Uh, you get this to this place where they're both right. They're both right. And that is tough. Like, and you apply that to any relationship, whether you're running a company, building an app, you're just, you're married, whatever. You guys feel like you're both right. Somebody's sleeping on the couch. That's right. That's right. That's, okay. just, that's just how that goes. So if, if the divorce is inevitable and, and look, I mean, it happens to everyone. The fact that we've had the same head coach and quarterback for 10 years is something a lot of franchises never see. And, and so, all right, let's say it is time for them to go their separate ways. They can't reconcile these differences. You got to choose. Are you keeping Russ or are you keeping Pete? Oh, I, I, I think there's really not even an argument to choose Pete if it came down to that. The scarcity of quality quarterbacks in the league is just so apparent every freaking year. It's really apparent in the nationally televised games. Like how many times a year are we bitching about, damn, we got to watch insert versus insert on Thursday night? It's all the time, it feels like. Or this per- versus this on when- on Monday night or the Sunday night game is what now? Like we're sending who to London? Yeah, there's so many of those. And it's- why? Because it's hard to find a quarterback. There's not 32 starting quarterbacks in the league at one time ever. I would argue there's probably not even more than 18 capable starting quarterbacks in the league at one given time, right? There's probably a good 20-something capable coaches in the league uh, at any given time. And it's just really hard to find quality quarterbacks because their job is so hard. It's so, so hard to process all that information at one time while 275-pound athletic freaks are coming at you. You know, that's just... It's just really hard. So I would choose Russ in that regard because I, it's just so hard to find someone who's really, really, really good at his position. It's really hard to find a good Pete Carroll too, Sure, but it's just a little harder to find a Russ. I think the other part about this that people forget is that Pete controls the personnel. So let's say there's a scenario where you trade Russ to the Eagles for both their first round picks in 2022, and then you get their first in 2023. All right, you just gave Pete a bunch of first round picks and a bunch of money. Do you trust him to do something with it? Right. No? Like, do you, or is he going to get you another LJ Collier, right? Like, or is he going to get you another Rashad? I mean, even in hindsight, the Bruce pick wasn't even that great in 2012. Um, but that's that's my other concern about choosing 
compete. It's choosing the regime that I consider to be a below average team when it comes to drafting. Like you have to be able to draft well and beyond first rounders, you need to hit in the picks in the second, third, fourth round. And they're really money in the second round, actually. But, you know, from Golden Tate all the way on to like Daryl Taylor. But I think in, in, in all, they don't draft well enough for me to think that even if you guys were to get a shit ton of assets in exchange for Russ, that you would adequately rebuild. Having assets doesn't make you good right away. Look at the Jags and the Jets. They stink. And they got tons of assets and money and free agents. And that's just not, you have to be good at using those assets. And I don't necessarily trust Pete and John going forward without a quarterback to do to rebuild i i totally agree with that you know one of the cases that one of the arguments that i hear for pete is well russ costs a lot of money right and so if you trade russ you're freeing up all this cap space but like you so many dominoes have to fall the right way for that to pay off like you have to allocate that money in a way that supersedes the impact that one russell wilson gives you and and that's why that argument doesn't hold a lot of weight with me because let's say you freed up 40 million dollars a year now all right what are you going to do with it you know are you gonna are you gonna go eight for eight on draft picks and signing mid-level free agents are you gonna spend it on two big free agents and then swallow back up all that cap space again with one or two guys and hope that they hit i mean it's really really hard to do just having money like you said there's lots of teams that have had lots of cap space that stay bad for a long time and i I still think I got Pete barely above like the midway point as far as coaches. And a lot of it has to do with the way he handles the off season, uh, the way that he gets buy in all of that kind of thing. Like I, I do put a lot of stock in that. I give him a lot of credit for that. Maybe there's a better chance that you end up with a worse head coach. If you move on from Pete, it is practically guaranteed that you end up with a worse quarterback. If you move on from Russ. Oh, well, the other part is too, you'd have to, if you move if you move on from Pete, uh, you probably get a new GM too, which is probably like for the best. Like I, I think the drafting part is so under money is not the way to build a team. It's like I think we look at quarterback salary and isolate it, which I think is such a lazy exercise. Yep, totally like, agree. The, the Seahawks weren't good in 2013 and 14 because Russ was cheap. They were good in 2013, 14, 15 because Russ was cheap and Sherm was cheap and Doug was cheap and Earl was cheap and Cam was cheap. Like I could just go on and on. It wasn't just if you isolate the quarterback salary, that is to ignore all the other variables that contributed to the team success. So it's not like, oh, we have money now. All you got to do is just get seven cheap Hall of Famers, man. It's not that hard. We saw it before. See that, you know, it's crazy. And people will tell you that. It's like, oh, and we had Russ. We were able to pay. No, you had Russ. And also, Russ and Jermaine Curse is like the cheapest national champ, uh, uh, NFC championship touchdown combo ever. So like that. It's like ridiculous. They're both making like minimum wage in NFL terms. That is rare. So it's not just that Russ was cheap. Like if you get a quarterback on the cheap and don't build around him with other cheap players, you're still going to stink. You're just going to have a cheap quarterback. You know, like the 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 watch. I bet you this is exactly what happens with the Jags. They're going to have money, have draft picks, and build a bunch of nothing around Trevor Lawrence. And it won't matter that Trevor is not that expensive. It'll matter because they'll draft boots who stink. That matters. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And and you know we we've talked a lot about Pete Carroll's shortcomings, certainly on the offensive side. I got to give him his flowers and Ken Norton Jr. too with the way the defense has played over the last month. I mean they were they were bad bad in the first month of the season. Very I mean, they, much so. They, yes. they looked they looked lost, man. It looked like they put a bunch of hamsters out on the field. They're just running around <laughs> trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. 
But over the last four games, man, they're averaging 15 points a game allowed. That is elite. That is Legion of Boom era defense right there in terms of just keeping the other team from scoring. And and it's made all the more impressive by the offense's inability to sustain drives. They were on the field for 40 minutes against Green Bay. Like, that's crazy. And they held them without a touchdown for like the first 32 of those. You know what I mean? Like, they, they've been balling. So I, I got to hand it to Pete that he's been able to make the changes necessary to get them back on track and playing like a top five unit. Do you think that this, what we're seeing from them right now is sustainable or is this just a hot streak? Uh, I do think some of it is sustainable for sure. The, they're like 29th in pressure rate and 29th in sacks, I think, and 23rd in another uh, pressure related stat that I don't have in front of me at the moment. So like, that's not sustainable. You gotta, you gotta be able to get pressure on quarterbacks. I don't care if you had Legion of Boom, teams are going to throw on you, but I do. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing with giving Pete those flowers because they're deserved, but he also was like, he was fixing a problem he created, you know, like they've had to make these trades for defensive players to fix problems that they created, right? Like, why did you need to trade for Carlos? Well, it's because you thought that your pass rush would get it done when your best pass rusher was like Jay Reed. Okay, well, that was a bad idea. Why did you have to go get Jamal? Well, it's because you tried to draft Mike Tyson to play safety. You tried to draft Tedrick Thompson and Lane O'Hill and Marquise Blair, and, and none of this worked. That's why you needed to go get Jamal. Why did you need to go get Quandre? Well, because you drafted Tedrick, right? And you drafted Marquise, and he wasn't ready to be a starting free safety in the NFL. You know, then you can just go go on and on you know why did you have to well i can't think of another one on top of my head but even look at like Dwayne brown why did you have to go get Dwayne? well it's because you thought george fant would be your you know your left tackle right or riso diambo why did you have to go get Clowney? why did you have to go get sheldon richardson because you drafted mcdowell so while i do think what they've done is impressive but they've had to like do damage control to damage they created and that part, it's like you can't ignore that part either. I love the Jamal trade. I love that. Well, the value of the Jamal trade is debatable, but I love him as a player, you know, having him. Yeah. I, I love Thank Quandre. you. It is nice to hear somebody else say that. I mean, Jamal has had his struggles, and I think he he has, I think the team has failed him in terms of putting him in a position to be what he is best at being. But he has come around a long ways. I, I didn't hate that trade. No, I think... So the reason I think that you have to do stuff like that and you have to overpay sometimes is if you're not drafting well. The teams who do stuff like that are the ones who don't draft well um, or just are punting on the draft entirely, and like the Rams, um, who are choosing to you know, trade for Jalen's and, and Vaughn's and Dante Fowler's and stuff like that when they're, uh, because they're not, they're just like, we're just not even going to try to draft, which whatever. I think that's an interesting strategy, one that I, I want to see the, the rewards of before I like credit it, but I like the the innovation. But yeah, I think Jamal's trade, you know, Quandre trade, there's a lot of these deals that they've had to do because they just haven't figured it out in the draft. And they have, I mean, you can go through each draft and see which teams passed on who, but they've really like not, not taken Buddha in 2017. You know, there's been some right. other ones not taken Jair, you know, in 2018, they traded out of the pick that became Jair. Uh, in in 2018, like why? And they traded it to the Packers. I think. I think that's how they got him. You know, why would you do that? That was right. And and that was the year Sherm had just tore his Achilles. Sherm, t- your best corner ever, just tore his Achilles, and you took a running back, traded out of the spot that became Jair to take Penny. So like, that is where 
I re- the, to go back to the Pete Russ thing, that's where I'm like, dog, you got to choose Russ and get another GM. You can't just roll with the – I'm not giving John Snyder and Pete Carroll 10 draft picks and $100 million because you're, you're not going to bring me back a championship team. You're just not. You're probably not even going to bring back a quarterback. They wanted to take Andy Dalton in 2011. Right? Like, so if I give you a high draft pick, are you going to bring me back a, a Josh Rosen? You know, if you give me a top mm-hmm. 10 pick in need of a quarterback. So, I, I, you know, there was that report of the offseason that Pete really loves Sam Darnold. It's like, what? If I have to root for Spencer Rattler over the course of a rookie contract, I'm jumping <laughs> off of the Space Needle. Yeah, it's there's there right i think that's my biggest criticism more than the offensive stuff um because there is something to what pete believes in offensively i really do think that like the packers are pretty much what pete wants to be on offense they're a team that if you play too high they're aaron jones you to death because their o-line is like top five in run blocking and if you want to cover three of them up cover one well aaron Rodgers is gonna hit you over the top you know with with his like excellence in his receivers um and they're and they use a lot of play action that's pretty much the Seahawks. The difference is one team has a top ten O line and one team's never had one. So like if you can't if you can't draft at the most you can't draft in the trenches, I don't want you building my team. To be honest, that's it. I, that it really just comes down to that. I'm on board with that, man. You know, one thing that I will say about the defense, though, I feel like the most underrated thing that's happened with this team over the last month is bringing Ryan Neal in and giving him snaps. Oh, yeah. I, I swear this secondary is, like, cohesive now because they were scattered, right? I mean, they were scattered those first four games, first five games, if we're being honest. But, like, there's Quandre was the only one handling his business, but there's a reason Jamal has been so much better over the last month, and I think it's because of Ryan Neal. And then, of course, switching DJ Reed back over to the right side where he said he's better Trey Brown is the one that's allowed that. I mean, he's been a revelation. He had that amazing play on fourth and two in this game uh, against the Packers. I got to say, you know, Reed, Brown, Neal, these are guys that don't get a lot of ink, but I think that they're kind of the key to this defensive turnaround. Yeah, I've actually, I just followed my Trey Brown story. So he's getting some ink that's coming all out. All right, uh, all right, all right. This, this week. Um, but you're, you're correct. And I think, here, man, this is going to sound so bad towards Trey Flowers, but I'm going to, I'm going to, this, I'm going to bring this back full circle. It'll start off kind of broad, but or very specific. I talked to Trey Flowers as like a DB coach, right? His name's um, OD, like Oliver Davis, trains a bunch of DBs down in Atlanta. I was talking to him about working with Trey um, because Oliver had posted a clip on Instagram, is what he does. He, follow, he posts tons of DB clips. That's his thing. He posted one to Trey of 2019. Trey gave up like a two-point conversion to like Kendrick Bourne or something against the Niners. And OD didn't know who Trey was. He posted it. He was like, Look, the young DBs, like you see how much cushion this guy's giving this guy. He has to know the situation. He's playing cover two. He's doing it right, but he has no threat to the flat because running back's on the other side, and he just plays all this cushion knowing that the guy's only got to go two yards, yada, yada, yada. Him and Trey get into it via DM. Trey ended up working out with him. Right? So I call OD uh, in the summer. He's like, you know, Trey knows the scheme. He knows what he's supposed to do. My next step with him is to be like, all right, you know the scheme. But now know the situation, know where you can take your shots, know where you can be like, all right, the scheme says do this. All right, now do it. But then once you recognize this thing, attack, right? That's where you can make that next step. That's where it separates like a cornerback who's just doing the playbook and who's like actually playing football, right? And that's the thing that I talked to Trey about. And that's actually what I asked him and what he tried to answer when he said, it sounds like you want me to be Sherm um, in the, right. the Minnesota game. Yep. 
that yep. some of his quotes were really taken out of context. Not by me, but they they were. Um, I thought that was unfair to Trey. But that's why he said that particular quote. And he's right. Sherm did do that. Sherm could freelance. Sherm could take risks because he knew the game so well. And he recognized things that could take shots. They got Trey up out of here after that Vikings game. Um, Trey Brown is like good at that exact thing. That is the best thing Trey has going for him right now is that Trey recognized. Let's look at the, the, uh, the Pittsburgh stop, that third down stop. Yeah. And uh, overtime. Trey's in cover four. He's got the he's got the curl route. It's Chase Claypool. Uh, he follows Trey uh, Claypool up the field. That's his job. But what he recognizes is that Ray Ray McLeod has leaked to the flat in the direction that Ben Roethlisberger is uh, is rotating because of pressure. So what does he do? All right, I gotta abandon this because I'm I'm on instinct right now. I know where the ball's going now. Read, recognize, and react. Same thing he did on that Packers play where he brought up uh, Alan Lazard on fourth down. Those are the plays that if if Trey had just done his job, Trey Brown, they complete the pass. It's not a blown coverage. He, they, you know, they just convert because he just did what the playbook said to do. He did that, and then some. And he, like, I think that is where he has made the biggest difference between Trey, uh, him and Trey Flowers. It's not just like, all right, one guy can cover. What does that mean? One guy can be in position. That's Flowers. The other guy can be in position and do something. About yeah, I think that's where Trey Brown has been really impressive to me. Is and he's a rookie being able to do that. Trey's in like year four. To to have that advanced knowledge of the game, to recognize stuff and just know when to take your shots, that's a big deal. And I think that's where I, that's the thing. And I wrote about this in the story that's coming out. That's where he's gonna succeed, I think. Because that's that's just that never that's not relying on athleticism or anything. That's where Sherm was so great. Sherm ain't that fast. He don't jump that high. He ain't that strong. But he knew where the ball was going, was able to get there and do something about it. And that's stuff that you can do for 10 years in this league. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, when we talk about the great Seahawks defenses of, you know, the 2012 through 2015 era, they attacked, you know. And I think the thing that's been so frustrating for me is we've seen Seattle's defense be reactive instead of proactive. They used to dictate terms to the offense. And and they played really, really downhill. And that's what I've been seeing over the last few games is they are getting back to recognizing they have the guys on the field who can recognize the plays early enough to say, you know what? My first job is no longer where I need to be on this play. I'm getting where I need to be. I mean, Quandre Diggs is amazing at that. And the tough part about the first uh, first part of the season was he would be out attacking and making these reads and playing on instinct but you'd have so many other blown assignments or too cushion, too much cushion on these coverages that sometimes it would look like Diggs was being hung out to dry or was in the wrong spot. When in reality, he was making the read that he saw, trusting that the other guys in the secondary were going to be where they needed to be, and they wouldn't. Yeah, the Trey Flowers really. I mean, I really liked Trey Flowers too. He was really insightful. That Minnesota Vikings interview he gave was actually really really good explaining what was going on. Like he even said in there, it's like, yeah, I got to figure out how to cover dig routes. You know, like either I'm going to figure it out or the coaches are going to help, but like dig routes are killing us right now. Like it's very rare that players admit a specific concept is killing them. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. Um, and then you look at week four against uh, the 49ers, Sidney Jones, when he gives up that big play to Debo Samuel where he's in the wrong spot, well, he followed a dig route. And what did Debo do? Just wheel it up the side in 76 yards. And it just shows you like, wow, 
it does it's it's more than just do the the scheme because even Sidney Jones was doing what he thought was the scheme. He blew a coverage, and gave a touchdown, right? And then now since then, uh, well, then actually you look at the Rams game. They ran dagger dig in routes the whole goddamn game. Robert was killing them on the same two or three concepts. Um, and then I, that's why I don't think it's a coincidence that since Trey has been in, and they fixed some other things too, but since they've been in, you got guys like DJ Reed, guys like Trey Brown, who the way that they are built, like physically, they have to take those shots. They can't rely on like being there a half second late because they got short arms and they're smaller guys. They can get boxed out. Whereas, like, so they have to be more instinctful, uh, instinctual, more, uh, have play with more anticipation. And I think that's why you're seeing two five nine guys lead this resurgence at outside corner in a Pete Carroll defense because they they know with their makeup, they have to be, not they have to be there, they have to be there and do something. Right. Uh, and that's, yeah, like you're saying, that was lacking before. And now they have it. So just fingers crossed that those two stay healthy because I think that's a really good cornerback duo. Well, that, that brings up something else I want to talk about. For two seasons now, we've seen the offense be great for stretches. And we've seen the defense be great for stretches. The one currently, the last half of last year. But we have yet to see any sustained stretch of time where both the offense and the defense are playing really, really well at the same time. I mean, you had the Jets game last year where you know they won 41 to 3. Uh, you had the Niners game earlier, then you had the Jaguars game. But I can't remember the last time there was even two consecutive Seahawks games where both the offense and the defense were clicking at the same time. Is is that coincidental? Is there something to that? Is that a reflection of coaching that they can't all be hammering away at the same time? Yeah, I think that's a that's another coaching thing that works against Pete. Like you can't get both sides clicking. I don't think that they they work together in these individual games. I just think that there's been this pattern. Defenses in general across the league, I think, tend to catch up to offenses around this point in the year. Like even so, because you got to remember at the start of the year, there's all these. Everyone's got this new stuff they've been hiding all off season. You get new quarterbacks, new coordinators, new head coaches. A lot of newness to start the year, so like teams can come out hot in a way that takes some adjusting to. And you got to put stuff on film. And by week week eight, every coordinator is like, "All right, we've seen this now. We're gonna not only have we seen it, we've seen it against a team that runs a similar scheme to us. Now we can really study you uh, and and figure it out." So I think that's part of it with the defensive side of the ball, which is why their their uh, improvement has come in second halves, while while the regression on offenses has come in the second half on uh, Seattle's part. So I think that that plays a role. I think for Seattle in particular, Tyler Lockett's injuries have been really big. These last few years, I feel like he's gotten hurt in the second half of the last like three seasons. Now he's been out there every week, but like 2019 and 2020, he just disappeared. I feel like in the second half, both after knee injuries, I want to say, uh, very, very, very strange developments that he just becomes a non a non factor. But I also think in general, even when he's healthy, that he's he's kind of become like a boomer bust guy. Anyone who has him in like fantasy probably knows this pain is that. Like, Either Tyler Lockett's going to score 100, he's going to have 150 yards and a touch, or he'll have like five catches for 34 yards. Uh, there's really no in between. And I think because there's no in between and there's not that third, reliable third target, the offense kind of falls apart because you need that third target. And that you need that third target to be someone who's going to go over the middle. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about with where they're throwing the ball. 
So they're not related, the the offense falling apart and the defense finding itself. Um, but ultimately, yeah, to answer your question, I think they are a product of of coaching, some roster deficiencies, um, all things that eventually come back to the guy who controls the scheme and controls the roster. I don't think there's any other way to see that, you know, and I, I like that point about the the halfway point of the season. And and that's why I like to reserve judgment on teams as best as I can until we get to this point, because all right, now everything is on tape and we can really see who is outplaying each other because it's, it's less of a guessing game now, you know, it's kind of like a, a playoff series in basketball where, you know, when you're playing 82 games, you can only do so much research when you're flying across the country three times a week you kind of got to show up and play but you get to game three game four game five and on in a series playing the same team you kind of know what it is they want to do and now you just see who can outplay each other i want to look ahead this week to a team that seattle knows and who knows seattle very well and that's the cardinals assuming kyler murray plays and it looks like it's trending that direction how likely do you think it is that the Seahawks win? To put it another way, if they were to play ten times, how often does Seattle win? Mm, that's 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 tough. I will. I, I'm gonna share this funny anecdote. After they played the Niners in Kyler's first game, I think it was Week Four, 2019, they beat them. I think Clowney had that pick six. Um, Seahawks won pretty pretty easily. I remember a player on the Seahawks. He was like, "Man, they gotta get a new coach." I was like, "What? Why? You just played them one time. It's Week Four. He was like, "Yeah, no, nah, that whole what they're doing that that shit is whack." That's not gonna work. Uh, <laughs> it was just so. Fun. He he didn't. It's not about Kyler. He was really low on Cliff. Um. So like to see Kingsbury kind of figuring it out in like the third year together is actually kind of funny. Uh. But I do think the Cardinals are probably gonna win this Sunday. Uh. I think if they play ten times, all these ten times in Seattle, are these ten? Are they are they rotating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying this game upcoming, it gets played ten times. How many times Seattle win? Probably like four. Yeah. Or maybe because I I don't have all of Arizona's numbers in front of me. I know they're really good offensively. I think they're really good on like third down as well. Uh, they like the number. They're really high on third down. I want to say they're also uh, a team that uses play action a ton. Uh, so like those two things that I really like. And to your point about the basketball series, that's really important because what you what you learn in those is how someone wins and loses games. Like, when I analyze a team, like, I can have a take three weeks in because I'm looking at the right things. Like, you look at the Chargers this year. They were really good on third and fourth downs. And so you look at their offense uh, as it's regressed. Like, you guys were winning on a lot of, like, uh, situations that are, like, have a lot of variance. Or you look at, like, the Chiefs' offense. They were turning it over a lot. They didn't have problems moving the ball. Mahomes was throwing the ball, hitting people in the hands, and then it would land in the other team's hands. That was eventually going to start swinging in their favor. That's why they smoked the Raiders. Uh, what's one reason they smoked the Raiders? Uh, but like, you have to look at why a team succeeds and why a team is failing, and and understand the sustainability of those of those things. Like, I'm really high on Seattle's defense um, currently because they're really disciplined. Um, they're not giving up a lot of explosives. Um, they figured out ways to be multiple on third down, which I th- and on defense, um, they're tackling. Uh, really well like things that just translate discipline tackling and then getting off the field they're also a really good red zone team like if you get off the field on third down and you're good in the red zone you're probably gonna be good right they're not relying on turnovers like they have been in previous years like 2019 i think they were so like that's why i'm high on that 
The offense, on the other hand, bad on third down, heavily reliant on explosive plays. Don't extend drives. Well, yeah, you're probably going to fall apart. So, yeah, the Cardinals, I think, are a little bit more complete. So that's why I think they win. But, like, big picture, I can look at Seattle and see, oh, you're do- you're really bad at things that you're probably going to continue to be bad at. And on defense, it's like, oh, you're good at things that you're probably going to continue to be good at. And, like, in the big picture, this could get, like, really ugly by, like, week 13 or something. Yeah, you know, and, and I was kind of thinking four out of ten, too. But I'm getting the sense that you're like me. That four is closer to a three than it is a five. Yeah, well – because Russ is still so goddamn good. And he is <laughs> yeah. a wild card, too. Like, this, Russ, your most disciplined defense can get beat on a 50-yard bomb by Russ. And the, I think the perfect evidence of that is the um, – there's two, and they're both against the Rams. The improbable catch by Tyler in the 2019 uh, Thursday night game uh, in the Action Green, that was ridiculous. It was also a really good defense by the Rams for like seven seconds. They covered all the regular concepts well. Russ had to scramble. They pressured Russ, and he just made one of the best throws of his life. Now look at the touchdown that DK had in the playoff game. They covered that really well. Russ has to scramble to his left, which is really hard for a right-handed quarterback. They they flushed him the right way, and he just nails DK on like a 50-yard dime out of structure, right? Like, Russ can do those things, and he's so good at those things. He had one against Arizona last year in Week 11 on a play-action scramble, hits, I think, DK for a touchdown in back of the end zone. So, like, I might still be closer to, like, that four being closer to a five. All right. Just because, man, if you give me Russ ten times, man, he's going to pull some magic out of his ass like probably five of those times, and that might be all you need. I have to be careful about doubting Russ too much. It's just I feel like there's only so much he can overcome. It. Th- that being said, I-, I think Seattle can win this game. For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be stunned if Seattle leaves that four and six. But if they win this game, Mike, how did they do it? Um, I think third downs um, on offense. I think that's that's the major one. Um, I think third downs on both. Like they've become since week four, when is when they put in Ryan Neal to your Ryan Neal point. Um, they've been like the best third down team in the league, maybe like top three, which is crazy because they were trash. Um, before then and they made such a huge leap and then like they're like the worst third down team in the league or like 30th on offense or something like that um and i mean i was gonna this is a behind the currents thing on my job you know we're kind of plotting like all right so how do we cover this team the rest of the way do we cover them like it's over do we cover them like they have a chance do we cover them like pete and russ are like divorced already it's very difficult um and i was telling somebody like in our one of our planning meetings like Guys, there's a scenario where if they win this game, they don't lose again until they play the Rams. I like, think about it. Like, look at the rest of their schedule. If they were to beat yep. like a, whatever Arizona is, like seven and three or whatever, if they were to beat this team, there's no reason to think they can't beat the rest of the teams on their schedule until they see the Rams in December 19th or whatever. Like, think about it. that's a that's rallying off a lot of wins, but that's wins against very beatable teams: Justin Fields, Davis Mills, Jared Goff. Uh, Taylor Heineke, uh, whatever the Niners are throwing out there at that time. Uh, so they've got a lot of winnable games coming up if they can win this one. You go three and seven, you're fucked. But yep. if you get to four and six and you one of those wins is against the Cardinals with Kyler, yeah, man, they could easily go on a run and never lose again until Christmas. Like That's how weird the Seahawks team is. No, I, I feel you. And 
and I think especially this year, like the NFC is messy, man. I mean, the whole league is messy. Yeah, the AFC is a shit show too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is. And, and, uh, Mike made a point when he and I were rapping last week on the pod, the NFL has finally achieved the parody it's looking for. I mean, the bucks have lost two in a row. Mm-hmm. The Rams yep. have lost two in a row. The bills lost to the Jaguars. The Cowboys lost to the Broncos. Like every water is finding its level in almost every city in the NFL, which is crazy. And it makes it that much more frustrating that Seattle has been bad this year because this, this is the landscape that sets itself up for like, if Seattle was playing the way they were last year, you know, which wasn't great, but they were doing the little things in crunch time, converting the third and fourth downs they needed to Russ was going hero, uh, when the game was on the line, a 12 win season this year might get the number one seed, but instead we're seeing this massive regression at the same time that all of this chaos is happening around them. And that feels like a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, no, it is. And on another tip of the parody thing, cause that is a good observation. I think it's really been um, illustrative of why players and coaches sound the way they do after games, because every game really is its own entity. Like it really is. It's really a week to week league. Like, yeah, some teams do good things each week, and that separates the good teams. But you can see a Buffalo team just smoke somebody about 30, and then they lose to the Jags because it really is about game planning. Um, I mean, some guys just don't have it some days, especially your quarterback, but it really is a week-to-week league. And that, I think, if you're going to have faith in the Seahawks, that is the reason because there is, in theory, a game plan to beat every team on their schedule. Like we just, the, the Niners just showed what it is um, to beat the Rams. Cause they look pretty unbeatable, but the, the blueprints out now rattle Stafford. He'll become Stafford from Detroit. Boom. Yep. This is secrets out. Like you can put you in LA and give your wife pretzels to throw at people, <laughs> but you're still Matt Stafford, uh, you know, from, from, from Detroit. Uh, so that, that blueprint is out. Um, there's the, the uh, Packers just showed you how to beat, the Cardinals, they are very beatable with Kyler Murray. Um, both of, you know, all of the teams I just said controlled the ball really well, converted on third downs. So, I mean, it's that's really not a secret. Convert on third downs, you win. But my larger point is for the Seahawks, there really is a blueprint to beat the Cardinals, to beat the Rams. You just have to go execute it. There's no team that's like, fuck, if we play them, we got no shot. No, every team you can beat. The problem is now they're at three and six. They're at a point where like, okay, you have to do that. You have to get on the right side of all this variance from third downs, turnover luck to the human element of the officials and their errors. You have to catch the right side of all that for like two months (laughs) to get to where you want to be. And that is just really hard no matter how well your team plays. Yeah, man, the margin for error is it's, it's almost officially zero. It will be zero if they don't pull it off this week. Yeah. So it's going to be very, very interesting. I think not only to see what Seattle brings to the field schematically, but how much juice they have for this game, because if, if, if you're going to make a case that you can compete in the NFC, you got to beat the leader of your division at home when you have the chance. Yeah, and they've they've risen to the occasion in some of these games in really weird times where I just didn't think they would. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, last year against Arizona in Week 11, I didn't think they would. Um, the 2017 uh, Eagles game, when if you guys remember, the 
Eagles came in here hot. They had one like nine straight. I was there, man. That game was wild. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And they, they beat the snot out of the Eagles. It was like 24 to 10 or something like that. Yep. Uh, I had I did not think they were going to win. They were dogs in that game. I want to say for like they had been they were home dogs for like the first time in forever uh, in that particular game. And then 2018 when Mahomes came in on Sunday Night Football and they were all banged up. Um, they were starting like Tedrick and Bradley or Tedrick and like Lano Hill were like their safeties or something like that. Mahomes was like lighting the league on fire. And then the Seahawks dropped like 38 on them and, and, and won the, and won the game despite giving up 31. So they can do it. There's, there's definitely precedent. I think even the 2017 game against Dallas might fall into that too. Uh, Christmas Eve. Like they have shown like, Hey, if we got to go up a couple weight classes and knock somebody the fuck out, we can do it at least right. at least once. And that's like I think yeah again there's the reason for optimism. This is the bully on the block. You get a bunch of nerds in lockers for like the next month after this. So yeah. if you can you know take some lunch money on Sunday, you you know you eat good you know the the rest of the way if they get it done you know on Sunday. Yeah man I I mean I completely agree. I I feel like this game more you know. I, there are certain things I was willing to give them a pass on with the Packers game, especially with Russ coming back and all that. But this is this is it. This is the fulcrum game. And if they can't tip this thing in the right direction on Sunday, I, I think it's I think it's pretty much a wrap for this team as far as like actually contending this year. And then that opens up a whole bunch of other questions that you know you and I have have touched on already. And and those are only going to get louder. And it's going to make for a very very interesting home stretch. And and I think. On that note, you know, this is time to good time to wrap it up. I I know we all got dinner waiting, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come in, especially knowing that this is such a busy time for you. So thank you. Oh yeah, no, I, I appreciate appreciate you having me, man. I appreciate your work. Um, I know you know your shit, so I would have said nah if you didn't know your shit. So um I I, I really that I, I this is a mutual respect. So thank you for, you know. This is a good, good, good discussion, man. There's a lot of nuance that re- that's required when discussing the Seahawks. That 280 characters of all caps yelling at me in my mentions just <laughs> does not do the trick. And I've, if people try it every day, it's like leave me alone, man. If you want to have a nuanced discussion, we can do it. And I think that if when you have those, you educate your audience too, and you actually f- advance the convo instead of just yelling at each other. Maybe that's just Twitter in general, not just Seahawks Twitter. But yeah. So you are saying that we should tweet more. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is such a, a. I met somebody. I have a homie who uh, got off of Twitter, um, and he's just so much happier. And I told him I was like, "Dude, I wish I, I need it for my job at this point." But, um, and I use it as a, as a as a newspaper. I bookmark a ton of articles every day and read them. But if I didn't do it for those two things of working legitimate reading. Man, I'd be off all social media. That shit is toxic, and it's we've gotten to the point where people aren't meeting new people and furthering conversations. We're kind of just uh, we've created little pockets that uh, what is it called? Where it's like confirmation bias. Yep. You can just curate your feeds to just we never learn anything. It's just a regurgitation of ideas you already believe, and that's just not really it's not helpful. That's just dumb. Uh, yeah, so I, I try to be off social media if I can, but I can't. It takes effort to get out of the silo for sure. I'm guilty of it too. You know, you mute, you mute the accounts that piss you off or disagree with or whatever, and then the algorithm figures that out and starts giving you more and more of the stuff that you want to hear. I feel that. So, with that in mind, tell people where they can find you online. <laughs> <laughs> I am willing to have some nuanced discussions online. Follow me on Twitter 
at Mike Dugar, M-I-K-E-D-U-G-A-R. I mean, yeah, there's still some fun. I still have some interesting conversations with strangers on, on Twitter. But yeah, largely, I just I guess that's my advice to everybody. Unplug. Unplug when you can, please. You'll be a much happier person when you do so. Yeah, man, I I feel that. And we'll use that opportunity to unplug right now. Again, we really, really appreciate you taking the time, man, and coming in here and chopping it up with us. Again, I want to thank everybody listening for supporting this show uh, here on social media and, of course, reading the column every week. You can find me on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. Remember, that's J-A-C-S-O-N. No K is okay when spelling Jackson. You can also follow Mike at at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. We are also doing audio reads of each article every week after the game. That way you'll be able to just pop in your headphones and listen to the article if you don't have time to open the laptop and read it Uh, we're also doing twitter lives at halftime of each game so check in ask your questions opportunity go back and forth with me about what's going on in the game what we want to see in the second half and if you like this show please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your preference we're really proud of what we're building here we're grateful for the support that we've gotten it's been amazing to see and that feedback super important to us as we continue to grow this thing it's something where we do this because it's fun But what really validates us is hearing that you guys like this show, uh, telling us what you want to hear us talk about. And and that helps build a reputation that allows us to get amazing guests on like Mike. So uh, that'll do it for today. Uh, I am actually taking a long-awaited family trip this week to Arizona, actually. So I will be in enemy territory for the game. But I wanted to let you all know we're going to use next week as our bye week for the pod. We'll be back the following week to see where this team stands Until then, onwards and upwards, my friends. Uh